Good morning, everyone. Welcome to this service of worship on this glorious St. Swithin's Day. You all know what that means, don't you? <laughs> Thank you, Sandra, for that reading and for the bonus verses. <laughs> it's good to be here, isn't it? Why don't you turn to someone near to you and say, it's good to see you, God bless you. <laughs> good to see you, Adrian, God bless you. Don't overdo it. <laughs> right, a little quiz. Who this week, which two celebrities agreed on a divorce within 11 days, a divorce whose terms are kept secret but said to involve millions of dollars? <coughs> Tom Cruise and who? Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes, correct. Who gave up 20 million pounds and will have to make do on just 2 million pounds? Bob Diamond, that's right. Who is on trial for allegedly ordering the extermination of 8,000 men? You can't pronounce his name, can you? <laughs> Radcom Ladich. Why is it that our news media are always so dominated by the rich, the powerful, and sometimes by the bad. It's often been said that our world in which we live is dominated by money, sex, and power. And over these next few Sunday mornings, we're going to be looking at some remarkable words of Jesus Christ. In a short passage we know as the Beatitudes found in Matthew chapter 5. And in Matthew chapter 5, we find a country preacher sitting on a hillside, pronouncing blessings on people whose lives will never be trumpeted in our headlines, in our news bulletins. Words which seem to be a total contrast to our frenetic 21st century world. The Beatitudes are among the most well-known passages in the scriptures. They come at the start of three chapters which we know as the Sermon on the Mount. Should be wonderful, the most famous sermon probably that's ever been preached. But you know, we have difficulties with these verses and... If anyone says, I live by the Sermon on the Mount, it's worth questioning them to see whether they've ever read it and studied it. But the Beatitudes raise some questions, these very simple verses that we find in Matthew chapter 5 and the first few, first few verses. First of all, who are they spoken to? Chapter 5 and verse 1, right at the start of the passage, says, When he saw the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him. Disciples, you know what disciples mean, don't you? Remember the L plate. Disciples are people who are learning, people who want to learn. And of course, we think, first of all, of the 12, the 12 disciples. 
But in the scriptures, a far wider group than 12 are described as being disciples. So some would see this as an instruction manual for the 12 chosen disciples. Others would see it as being everyone who wanted to learn all those who were following him, whether they were in the 12 or not. And I like to think of these verses as being like that. But if we look at chapter 7, verse 28, which comes right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, what do we read? We read that when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So the crowds, whether they'd all gradually edged farther forward, I don't know, or whether they were just straining their ears from a distance to hear. But I like to think of Jesus as addressing a whole crowd of people here. They weren't privileged people. They hadn't bought tickets for this event. They were people who were marginalized, disenfranchised by the structures of our life, of our world. They were those who had no chance. To use Paul Simon's rather inelegant words, they were the sat upon, the spat upon, the ratted on. And Jesus looks at this ragtag collection of people on that hillside and in a heart overwhelmed with love, he says, the kingdom of heaven is yours. Are these words for today? Or are they for some future ideal millennial kingdom? Well, of course they're for today. They're for all who are hungry for God. And if you this morning are a disciple, you're wanting to learn, you're hungry to know more about God, these are for you. People who don't deserve God's love. Perhaps this morning you're even feeling you're an outsider in this church. And all its well-oiled machinery and all its structures and you feel, oh, I'd love to break in, just as these people would love to have broken into the world of affluent Judaism, the rich in Jerusalem. These words are for us this morning, whether we're church leaders or just followers or even outsiders. And the problem we have with these, they're so brief, these verses. You can get through them in just a minute or so. Why didn't Jesus include a study guide with them? Discussion starters for house groups. But he didn't. We just have these terse sayings. And it's for us, I believe, to catch the spirit of what he said. Do you know, on my bookshelf, which isn't as ample as many preachers' bookshelves. I've got no fewer than 12 books dealing with the Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes in particular. So many different views, so many different theories, great theological constructs are built on these very simple verses. But I would like to suggest that if there was ever a passage of Scripture that did not need heavy theological volumes written about them, it is these. A deeper question that we have with these verses, these simple verses pronouncing blessing on ordinary, needy people, how do they square with our evangelical the theology? 
Because a casual reading of this Sermon on the Mount, and in particular the Beatitudes, reveals that these verses breathe a very, very different air to that of the Apostle Paul, whose teachings on sin, grace, justification by faith are so familiar to us. Well, of course, they do inhabit a different world. Paul was writing to churches. They didn't have church buildings, they met in homes, but they were people, in a way, to a certain extent, like us. People who discovered a wonderful life-transforming joy of knowing Jesus Christ as a living reality in their lives. And Paul was writing to people in churches, people we might describe as evangelical Christians, Which is why I chose that reading from Psalm 37. Because I find that this psalm, and many psalms like it, to be a helpful background to the Beatitudes. Because if you read through Psalm 37, you will see the contrast between, first of all, the meek, the poor, the needy, the upright, the righteous, who trust in the Lord and wait upon him. They commit their way to him. They don't fret. They're upheld by the Lord. And on the other hand, there are the wicked, the powerful, the bully boys, the evil men. And it's clear that this group ruled the roost. They're in power. They trample on the poor. They persecute the righteous. And I believe Jesus picks up this sort of background in the Beatitudes. He's talking to people who inhabit the world of Psalm 37, where you're either in or you're out, and most people are out. Because in Jesus' day, it was the ordinary people who listened to him with great joy and great delight, hungering for his words. They were poor. The Sermon on the Mount was given in the region of Galilee and Jesus was talking to a group that for the most part were uneducated, largely unskilled, Jewish working men and their families, casual workers waiting in the marketplace for a job to do, hired men engaged to plough the fields on a day-to-day basis, Men coping not only with the problems of seasonal employment, an uncertain harvest, but also with a crippling burden of taxation. No wonder they were yearning for the coming of someone who would set them free, for the Messiah, who would bring in the kingdom of God. And these people are flocking to follow Jesus because they sense that in this man, with his magnetic personality and his words that are so strong and good and powerful, they sense that in this man, Jesus, is the answer to all their longings. Because in this Sermon on the Mount and in these Beatitudes, there is no theology of the cross or the resurrection. They haven't happened yet. There will come a time when these simple people will come to know the joy of serving a risen saviour, of rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. But that time had not come yet. At the moment, what they have is an Old Testament understanding of God and his promises.
So Jesus speaks in categories that have so much in common with simple, ordinary people, the people of the Psalms and the prophets, than with the skilled rhetoric of Christian preachers. And those hearers of Jesus sitting on that hillside would have so identified with the poor of Psalm 37 and of the Beatitudes. They were at the bottom of the pile in first century Galilee. And talk of inheriting the land and possessing the kingdom would have resonated with them with a hope that these phrases don't quite have for us. And although we often think of the Beatitudes as a sort of advanced level Christianity, Jesus was really giving these people some basic building blocks. They didn't have to strive to be poor in spirit. They were. They didn't have to strive to mourn because for them life was a grim business. So yes, if you like, this is pre-evangelism. This was preparation for that time when they would know the joy that we know in serving a risen saviour. What does this word blessed mean? For some people, the word blessed strikes a rather pious note. For that reason, some translations of the New Testament have opted to use the word happy. Happy are those who are poor in spirit. Happy are those who are mourn. That jars a bit, doesn't it? Being poor doesn't make you happy. Mourning doesn't make you happy. So, I think we've got to retain this thought that it's blessing we're talking about. If you're in a condition which the world does not look up to you, where the world rather pities you, you're poor, you're mourning, you're meek. In that sort of situation, you can be blessed by God. Blessed by God with a blessing that the rich and the powerful and the privileged of this world know nothing. Because the word happy rather depends on your circumstances, doesn't it? Life may have treated you well. You may have brains, you may have a pleasant personality, you may, may have good looks, you may have a happy marriage, you may have had a decent education, have a good job. But what happens if you lose your looks, if you lose your husband, if you lose your job, if you lose your money? Well, that's hard luck. You've gone to the bottom of the pile again. Jesus said, in my kingdom, it's not to be like that. Even if you're poor, even if you're mourning, in my love, you can be happy. Today, we're looking at the first two of these Beatitudes, these simple sayings of Jesus. And the first says in our New English Version translation, blessed are the poor in spirit. In fact, there is no other way you can translate the words that are there in the original Greek. What does it mean? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, many translations have done their best to help unpack what this means. 
The Good News Bible says, happy are those who know they are spiritually poor. Happy are those who know they are spiritually poor. The New English Bible says, how blessed are those who know their need of God. The New Living Translation says, God blesses those who realize their need for him. It's a good starting point, isn't it? God blesses those who realize their need for him. Do you know your need? Perhaps you've tried to fill that need with other things. But it hasn't worked. When are we more likely to realize our need of God? It's when our lives are emptied of those other things that so often fill our lives, which is perhaps the secret behind these Beatitudes. That when you feel you're losing out on all that should make life a success and give you satisfaction and happiness, that's when we realize our need of God. You know, Luke's version of the Beatitudes, which of course may be something Jesus said on another occasion, because I'm sure Jesus didn't say all these things once only. In Luke's version, in Luke chapter 6, Jesus says, Blessed are you poor. Is that different? Well, the more I think about it, I think it's not so different. Biblically, it's not. Because materialism has always been a barrier to turning to God. You may agree with me that one of the biggest barriers to sharing the good news of Jesus in our country today is the materialism of so many people. But if we look at what poor meant in the Old Testament, there's an interesting Bible study, an interesting development of the idea of poverty in the Old Testament. Because the word poor in ancient Hebrew originally just meant having nothing. But this developed to meaning having nothing, therefore having no influence, no power, not counting for anything. And that developed into meaning that being poor meant because you have no influence or power, you get downtrodden, you get persecuted, you get sat upon. And that developed in the theology of the Old Testament because you are downtrodden and oppressed, persecuted, sat upon, you cast yourselves upon God, upon a merciful God who will bring forth your justice like the noonday sun, who will vindicate your cause, who will hear your cry for justice. This is the Old Testament concept of the righteous poor. We see this in the Old Testament prophets, but especially in the Psalms. You know that lovely verse in Psalm 34? This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and delivered him out of all his troubles. Psalm 72, talking about the king, the king will defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. He will crush the oppressor. And of course, Psalm 37. That lovely psalm of trusting in God and letting him deal with the swaggering oppressors. I began to appreciate 
this idea of poverty and deprivation. When Jean and I lived in Sao Paulo for three years, got a picture, Richard, if you could show the picture on the screen. There we are. It's an aerial picture of a small part of Sao Paulo, typical of many huge cities in Latin America, Asia, and Africa. And on the right, you see a luxury apartment block, typical of hundreds and hundreds of them in Sao Paulo, with their swimming pool and their tennis courts and their balconies with their jacuzzis. And on the left, just divided by a wall, is a tiny corner of the huge favela of Paraisopolis, which is the home for 80,000 people, 15,000 of whom are illiterate. Now, when we lived a couple of miles from here, I was never invited into that luxury apartment block. But I went with a group of people from our church, and I preached there, probably just up to the top left-hand corner there, in front of a little shack, and a group of people around were hungry for God. They were longing to hear the words of the gospel that the middle class, the rich, did not have time for. They had everything they needed. They had their reward. And there were people there who heard the good news with an eagerness that I've never found amongst middle-class people, whether in Brazil or in this country. And I found myself thinking, on which side of the wall would Jesus be more welcomed? Would he be welcomed by the rich people? I suspect they wouldn't have time for him. He would be welcomed among the poor, the poor in spirit, those who know their need of God. And I ask myself, with which group do I identify best? Do I identify best with those who have everything? For those for whom life has been one long success story? Or do I identify with those who feel that somehow that life has shut them out and they're at the bottom of the heap? Okay, thank you, Richard. Blessed are those who realize their need of God. And what about the second one? Blessed are those who mourn. We can't say happy are those who mourn, can we? You're blessed, says Jesus. And this isn't difficult to understand, is it? There are some of you sitting there who are sorrowful because you've suffered a heartbreaking loss. This is a wonderful promise to you. A God who understands your sadness. A God who understands the emptiness in your life. A God who will draw near to you to give you his comfort. Yet I believe this simple promise goes wider than that. The promise is for those who are sorrowful for their sin. This is unfashionable, isn't it? We don't talk about conviction of sin anymore. We don't like to think it's something that affects us. These days, people blame their upbringing, their genes, their bad luck. But the Bible gives us no encouragement and encourages us to take responsibility for our own lives. Jesus himself didn't mince words. On another occasion, he said, 
out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, and so on. Jesus looked at people and said, I love you, but first you have to deal with the sin. You have to be sorrowful for the sin in your own lives. And although I believe Jesus would have recognized the greater responsibility of the rich and the powerful, those in a position to change people's lives, yet he recognized that out of the human heart comes all that spoils this world. And so Jesus is saying, you're blessed. You're drawing near to God when you realize that you are part of the problem there in your heart. You're mournful, you're sorrowful because of your own sin. But secondly... I think Jesus identifies closely with us when we look around at this world in which we find ourselves, this suffering world, and we mourn for those who are needy in our world. You've seen the Midi this week? You've seen that lovely picture of Alex Jeffs? <laughs> Worth buying the Midi this week to see Alex Jeffs. He was going to jump out of a plane on Friday, but they cancelled it because of the weather. He's going to do it sometime. He's going to do it. But he didn't do it on Friday. Now, if you've not signed up to sponsor him, do so. Because I'll tell you what he's raising money for. He's raising money towards helping to feed the 1.4 billion people in our world who live in extreme poverty, who live on less than $1.25 per day. So good on you, Alex. Most of us say, yes, we wish we were doing it with you. Or perhaps we don't. <laughs> but thank God for a man who has taken on a little bit of that suffering of the world and his mourning, is concerned, is moved so much that he's going to do something about it. So one sheet of sponsors has already been filled. The second one is on the notice sheet. Do sign up afterwards to add to this that Alex Jeffs is doing because he is sorrowful. It's moved him, it's touched his heart, the need of people in our world. Graham Kendrick was moved enough to write the words, melt our cold hearts, let tears fall like rain. And I'm challenged and I ask myself, how much am I moved by the needs of the people who this day will not have anything to eat? How much have I moved those who have been driven out of their homes and live in refugee camps? How much am I moved for the sake of my brothers and sisters in Christ who are persecuted for naming the name of Jesus? You're blessed, says God. You're blessed, says Jesus. You're close to God's heart when you're sorrowful, when the hard knocks of life crush you when you take yourself and the world you live in seriously enough to mourn, because life isn't all laughter. But if you do that, you will find a comfort and a strength that comes from Jesus Christ himself. Do you know, as I said at the beginning, our 21st century culture seems obsessed with celebrities, dominated by business tycoons, dictators, Crooks and swindlers many times. Our modern world seems to have such a totally different agenda to Jesus. Blessed are the powerful, says our modern world. 
Blessed are those who get their own way. Blessed are those who grab whatever enjoyment comes their way. And my dear friends, how so easily we get caught up in that same philosophy. We so easily allow the world around us to be squeezed into its mold. Whereas God is saying, allow God to remold your life from within. Perhaps if we want to do that, if we want to allow God to remold our thinking, if we want to avoid that being squeezed into the world's mold, well, perhaps the Beatitudes are a good place to start. If you were at Pilgrim Hall three Sundays ago, you will recall that there was a word from the Lord reminding us of one of the basic conditions for receiving God's blessing. You remember? Namely, that God cannot fill what is already filled. And perhaps God is saying to us this morning, through these simple and uncomplicated words of the Beatitudes, perhaps God is saying to us that he wants us to open our hands to let go of everything that fills them, to let go of things that unnecessarily clutter our lives and to open our hands, open our hearts, open our minds to freely receive from God.